As we come to the Word of God, let's, uh, let's ask God's blessing upon our time. I encourage you to bow with me. Father, indeed, we do come humbly before you, recognizing our own inadequacy, recognizing our need for you. As we open your word, we ask that you would please bless us, cause your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, enable our hearts to be humbled before the truth of your word, the revelation of who you are in Christ. And Father, may the gospel sit upon our hearts in new and fresh ways this morning. We recognize that in our flesh, we cannot discern the things of your word. We need your spirit to illuminate them to us. And so we humbly ask now that you would do that for your name's sake and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I encourage you to open your personal copy of God's word to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 as we return to this great chapter. Every single person is born with a conscience. The conscience is a piece of equipment that God has given every single human being and it enables us to know the difference between right and wrong. When something happens or something that we do, our conscience is pricked about what we do and we are then triggered to know whether what we've done is right or whether we've done is wrong. This is part of God's original creation in man. And when mankind is pricked over their conscience, when there is a sense that we've done something wrong, people can tend to respond in one of two ways. They can either self-reform or they can self-indulge. They can self-reform or they can self-indulge. On the one hand, there are those who try to self-reform. They are the moralists. They uh, don't like this sense of the moral indiscretions that they've, they've uh, seen in their life. And so they launch into a self-improvement project to say, this is not going to happen again on my watch. I am going to be different. And so their concern is to regain moral rectitude in their own lives and the lives of others. They don't like the stain of the wrongdoing upon their own hearts and consciences, and so they set out to make it different. And they appease their conscience by replacing their bad deeds with good ones. And the more good deeds they do, they weigh, outweigh the bad, and suddenly they, their conscience feels better. On the other hand, there are those who, upon feeling the guilt of a pricked conscience and the shame of their sin, they double down upon their sin. They self-indulge. They say, forget those rules. I'm going to do whatever I want. It's the rules that are the problem. It's not my actions. Their concern is to ignore the shame and instead to override those feelings with more indulgence of the flesh. They reason that the more pleasurable activities that they do, the better they'll feel. And so the way they deal with their conscience is that they numb their conscience by increasing their sin so that what once felt wrong now feels normal. These categories of people are recognized even by those who are not religious. 
They can identify that there are those who, on, by, by initial observation, are the bad people. They're giving in to bad behavior. And there are those who are the good people, those who strive to live moral lives and do good things. In the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15, commonly known as the story of the prodigal son, there are characters in both of those categories. The younger son was the bad one, and the eldest son was the good one. And you see this kind of moral categorization all through wisdom literature of all sorts and in all societies. But in this parable, Jesus doesn't just continue on in that same sort of paradigm. While he identifies someone who is good and someone who is bad in terms of their life decisions, he blows that whole paradigm, turns it on its head. He shows that good people are not always the winners, that bad people are not always the losers, that good people are not always the righteous ones, and that the bad people are not always, don't always end up to be the bad ones forever. And what makes the difference between the winners and losers? What makes the difference between those who are ultimately good and those who are ultimately bad? It is the grace of God. And so let's be reminded of this again this morning by first reading our text. And I invite you to follow along as I read Luke chapter 15. We'll read this parable beginning in verse 11. And he, being Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. 
His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, last week we began to look at how this passage gives us two illustrations of God's grace to different classes of, of, of sinners. And these illustrations seen in this parable prompt us to ask, how will I respond to God's overtures of grace to me? How will I respond to God's overtures of grace to me? The first thing that we saw last week was God's grace to the self-indulgent. And we saw this in verses 11 through 24. What these verses revealed to us is that even those who throw off moral restraint and give in to their sin and live selfishly and recklessly can return to find grace from God. Even though we may have walked a thousand miles away from Christ, a thousand steps away from him, it only takes one step to return back to Christ. God is a rescuing God who pursues prodigals in their rebellion and brings them back to himself. And in this we celebrate that God would not leave us in our sin, but come to rescue us. For a full explanation of verses 11 through 24, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon if you were not here. And so we're going to continue to look at the, the second illustration of God's grace in this passage. And in verses 25 through 32, we see secondly God's grace to the self-righteous. God's grace to the self-righteous. Now, too many Christians over the centuries have neglected this second half of the parable. Understandably, they connect with and love the story of the prodigal returning home and being embraced by a loving father. We, as Christians, understand and, and resonate with a father, the Father God, embracing us as sinners. But we can, Christians have often failed to understand how these final verses fit into the overall structure of this parable. This final section, verses uh, 25 through 32, is not just an add-on to the main point. It's not like, well, you know, we mentioned two sons, and so even though we got through like the main thing we wanted to get through, we should probably tell you about this other son. Because if it was kind of like that, then Jesus wouldn't even have to have say, said there was two sons, Right? He could have said that there was one son that was lost and the son had returned. But this, in fact, these final verses, friends, are in one sense the, the main point of this parable. If this parable was a joke, these verses would be the punchline and none of the rest of it would make sense without it. This these verses are the climax, not just of this parable, but really of the three parables that have, already, that have been given in this chapter. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. 
We need to remember, who is Jesus speaking these parables to? Well, if you let your eye glance back up to verses 1 and 2, that there were tax collectors and sinners that were drawing near to Christ, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus launched into and replied to them with these three parables. Therefore, these verses that we're looking at this morning are the punchline in his response to these scribes and Pharisees. And let's just for a moment put ourselves in their shoes. They've been listening, politely listening to Jesus going through these parables. They know that he's replying to their grumbling, to their response, to him receiving sinful people. And particularly in this story, the story of the prodigal son, as they would have heard the son's request to have the inheritance, to have the share of the property, they would have been shocked. They would have recognized that uh, this son was being rebellious, asking for something that he should not be asking for, particularly in such a way that was shaming and dishonoring his father. He was essentially asking and hoping that his father would be dead so that he could receive the share of the property. So they are enraged at the son. But then they think, oh, well, certainly the father will deal with this son properly. They will punish this son for his, his outright rebellion and put him in his place. But that's not what the father does. The father grants him his, his request. And then Jesus goes on to describe all of these things coming to the son. He goes in the far country, he spends his money, and now he winds up in a pig sty. And the Pharisees are sitting there going, yeah, serves them right. That's what happens if, you, uh, if you're rebellious like that. God judges you. There, see, there's blessings for obedience. There's judgment for disobedience. The, that young man's just seeping, reaping what he sowed. And so they think when he comes back, oh, he's going to go back. He's going to try to go back to his father, try to go back to his, his home village. Well, he's got another thing coming. But then to hear the father's response. That he doesn't shame and punish his son, but instead he moves towards his son and embraces him, kissing him and, and, and loving him would have shocked them and they would have wrinkled their noses and said, what kind of father is he? He doesn't know his responsibility either. This, this story is filled with people that don't know what they're supposed to do. And so by the time they reach the verses that we're looking at next, they are hoping that there's at least someone in this story that will do something right for once. And so in steps the older brother. And there's some things that we see about the older brother that we are identifying as the self-righteous one. And so the first thing that we see in verses 25 through 28 here is the protest of the self-righteous. The protest of the self-righteous. It says the older son came, comes in from the field and he, as he comes closer, he begins to hear about music and dancing, verse 25 says. Now being out in the field all day, it's highly likely that he wasn't actually out there with his hoe um, in the hot sun by himself uh, planting crops. 
by the nature of this story, their servants, there seems to be a good deal of property. Uh, being a son and heir to uh, the father, he is probably supervising workers that are in the field, although it doesn't say that directly. We just are inferring from the wealth that we see in this passage that they are probably not slaving away himself, but, but still he is out in the field supervising workers. And the day is done, he's coming in, and he hears music and dancing. The word for music here is the word uh, symphonia, from which we get the word symphony. It refers to, to music, this sound produced by musical instruments. You could, you could uh, hear that faint kind of coming across the wind, and as it gets closer, it gets louder and louder. And then there's, there's dancing or chorus in the Greek refers to that chorus, this idea of joining together. They were all dancing together. You could probably hear the clicking of the heels upon the ground as they all danced together in rhythm. But together these words describe a loud and joyful party that this brother is coming upon. It's like that one house, you know, in the neighborhood that has a, late, a party late into the night. And you're not quite sure where exactly it's at. You just kind of hear the, the music going. And you're like, wow, they must be having a good time tonight. He's hearing this music and dancing coming from his own house. Now naturally, he's curious about what's taking place. Okay, I left this morning and everything was pretty normal. I'm out in the field and then I come back and there's something going on. What is it? But he's already, you get a sense he's already suspicious, right? He's not walking in with a smile on his face and go, whoa, what party did I miss? And, and wanting to join into the joy, he's already kind of walking in with his arms crossed a little bit like, what's going on here? In fact, he stays outside. He doesn't walk right in and ask the occasion. He, he begins to test the waters as he, as he gets closer. It says that he called one of the servants, verse 26, and asked him what these things meant. Now this word could be translated, uh, it's the word pice in the Greek, it could refer to a servant, could refer to a young boy. Oftentimes the children of the village were not allowed to go into and participate in the, the celebration that the adults were having. And so there would be kind of this particularly group of boys that would hang out on the outside and, and kind of hang out together, kind of a, a childhood gang, so to speak, that would go around the village. And, and, and here they were on the outside looking into this party, hanging out together. And as this older brother returns, he calls one of them over to him, using a command to come and stand before me and answer me a question. The older, older son, being uh, one uh, heir, the uh, son of the, the father, he is to be obeyed. So he comes over and gives a perfect summary of the day's events. He said, your brother has come, your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And so in one sentence, the older brother is briefed on what has taken place. Not only, get this, not only has the son returned, that would have been shocking enough, but it's particularly in the word received that would have really struck at this older brother's heart. Received. He received him. 
Sure, he can come back. He can try to regain our favor. But my father received him? Reconciled with him? What was he thinking? On top of that, he's throwing a big party. He's, he, he, he slaughtered the fattened calf. This is one that didn't just graze out in the grass but was fed with grain in order to put lots of meat on him so that and when this was slaughtered, it was, it, there was no refrigeration. Uh, it had to be eaten that night, which means how many people do you need to, to eat from a calf? You need a lot of people. And so this would have been a party he threw for the whole village. This would have been a grand, huge party that he called in order to celebrate the return of his son and the reconciliation that he has with him. You can imagine this boy or servant giving this news and uh, despite maybe the, the, the body language of the older brother that we're imagining, he's probably came up somewhat excited because there's a lot of hubbub, a lot of news that's happened today and, 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 and this is exciting stuff and we're celebrating and so he, he probably has a bit of, of, of a smile on his face as he's telling this to the older brother. But as he's telling it, or, or soon after telling it, I'm sure his smile began to fade as he watched the reaction of the older brother. Look at verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. This older son was provoked to great anger. He became a boiling cauldron of wrath. And in his anger, he protested, he refused to go inside to this party. Now in this culture, it would have been expected that if the father throws a party and throws a feast that the, the sons would be uh, included or, or be, be responsible for serving the guests. The father would sit at the head of the table and the, the older son particularly would be like the head waiter and would be looking to, to serve the guests that were there in honor of his father. And so when this son remains in the courtyard refusing to go in, he is deliberately and publicly insulting his father. And the news would have spread quickly through the party guests. So-and-so's outside, he's not coming in. And, and all of a sudden, the tone of the evening has quickly changed. Ice has spread through the occasion. Here, in this refusal, in this anger, what seemed to be the nice boy, the nice older son, his true colors are revealed. And they will continue to be revealed through this text. By him publicly snubbing his father, he shows that he does not love or respect his father. In fact, he is putting on a show of his rebellion. He is, does it in such a way that he knows other people will hear and see, and he's okay with that. Now, we need to remember that in Jesus' story here, there's somewhat of a, 
analogy to people in real life, right? As he's telling the story, the younger brother represents the tax collectors and sinners, those who lived immoral lives, but were drawing near to Christ that we saw in verse 1. The father, in one sense, represents God the Father. In another sense, he represents Jesus who represents the Father, right? Jesus comes not of his own accord, but of his Father's accord. He comes to, to, to represent his Father, obey his Father. The older brother, though, represents the scribes and the Pharisees who had grumbled at Jesus' open-hearted embrace of these sinners, and so what we see here in verses 27 and 28 is, is Jesus' narrative description of the Pharisees. Just as they grumbled at Jesus receiving sinners and feasting with them, so the older brother grumbled at the father feasting with the younger son. Now, in our, own, in our own day, there are the self-righteous that are with us today. The self-righteous is not just a problem for the scribes and the Pharisees. The self-righteous are not just something that Jesus encountered, but the self-righteous have been around since sin entered the world. We love our own righteousness. We think that we are good in and of ourselves. And this can often, the self-righteous can often be found within the religious. Those who hold to some sort of moral standard and often they can even be found in Christian churches. Those who claim to follow the Bible and want to live morally upright lives and yet they take pride in their righteousness. They ha take confidence in their own good works. They're the ones that look down their noses at bad people, the dirty people out there that couldn't get their act together. They're the ones who believe they've achieved their position of religious faithfulness of their own accord. And they believe that others should be able to climb the same ladder to attain the same level that they've attained to. And they're happy to show it to others. Listen, this is the ladder. You step on this rung first, and then you step on this rung, then you go here, and this is how you climb your way up. It's what I did. You can do it too. And these folks, as represented here in the, this passage of the older brother, don't want to associate with those who have sordid backgrounds, those who have made different life choices. Oh, sure, they might accept them once they've cleaned their act up and they begin to look like the self-righteous, but until then, they keep their distance. This is a challenge to us, to those of us that believe that we are seeking to live and follow God's word accordingly. But have we caused what is God's standard to be achieved through the power of the Spirit in the gospel instead turned into a standard in which we take pride in our own attainment? in which we think ourselves better than others, in which we do not credit the grace of God for where we are at, but we credit our own achievement, in which we have no grace for other people who fall short of the standard that we claim to live by. Friends, it can often be conservative, Bible-believing Christians that can be most credited with the same attitude 
of the older brother in this parable. Do we treat those who maybe once sat among us, maybe once claimed to believe, maybe once lived moral life in some way, but since have abandoned the faith, since run off living life according to their own standard and, and following the flesh, do we have the same kind of grace that the father has towards the prodigal? Or do we have a disdain like the elder brother to his younger brother? The story of this older brother should cause us to ask, where has our moral standards caused us to be harmful in our approach to people, maybe even family members, whose morals are suspect? We need to examine our own lives that we don't find ourselves protesting just like the elder brother. Well, back in this story, this news would have traveled quickly. As I said, a hush would have fallen upon the party. Everyone would have known that a breach has been made in the relationship between the oldest father and the son. Here they are celebrating the reconciliation between the youngest son and the father. And now, what brings that to a screeching halt, but a rupture in the relationship from the older son to the father. The question now, as all the guests sit there silently, is what's the father going to do next? And here we see the second point in this story, and that is the pursuit of the self-righteous. The pursuit of the self-righteous. And we see this just in the, the last sentence of verse 28. You can imagine, again, the tension in the room and all the eyes would have turned to the father wondering what he's going to do. It would have been normal for him to instruct the servant to go out and take the son away and he will deal with him later. This son that stands outside is rebellious. He is not doing what an old elder son should do and therefore there is there is punishment. The father is not going to put up with that kind of shame, not going to put up with that kind of dishonor. And so he's going he's to put him away and he's going to allow the party con to continue and preserve his honor. But that's not what this father does. This father, with all the eyes on him, chooses to sacrifice his honor. And he stands up, taking the shame, and he goes out to go try to plead with his older son. He's sacrificing his own reputation. And let's remember, this is not the first time he's done this, right? This is the character of this man. Because he's already pursued his younger son earlier in the day. He already pulled up his robes and ran undignified towards his son earlier in the day and reconciled with his youngest son. And now, did, it, did, his, did his attitude change to his now self-righteous older son? No. He sees that his older son is lost too and he goes out to pursue him. To win him back. Notice verse 28, it says, his father came out and entreated him. 
This word entreat speaks of an action where rather than coming face to face with him and exhorting him and commanding him strongly, he comes alongside him, puts his arm around him and tries to help him see from his perspective. It can be translated exhort or urge. His father is pleading with his son to come in, to join in the joyous celebration. He could have commanded him as a father, but instead he pleads with him and urges him as a son to change his attitude. And friends, in this, we once again see the pursuing grace of God, do we not? The Father, God in heaven, moves towards all kinds of sinners. He moves, moves towards the prodigals and he moves toward the proud. Both of them, both of these sons had a broken relationship with their father. Both of them had shown great disdain and contempt for their father. They had sinned against him. And yet the father pursued both of them in order to win them back. Friends, we can rejoice that our God is a God who is gracious, not just to the self-indulgent, but also to the self-righteous. That God doesn't just pursue prodigals, but he pursues Pharisees too. He doesn't leave the religiously proud to find their own way out of their sin. But he continues to come towards them to break them free of their, the clutches of sin, the slavery that they're enslaved to. I believe this is, this is part of my story. Growing up in the church, so easily taking pride in my own accomplishments and the accolades that I got from others for the good behavior that I had and trying to win the approval of those around me. And yet, God did not leave me in my pride, but he continued to show me my sin, to graciously reveal himself to me and show me that I too am a sinner, that I am just as rotten on the inside as those who are out there pursuing hard fast after their sin with no regard for God. God is gracious to the proud as well as to the blatant sinners. And friends, we got to see here that this is Jesus graciously pursuing the Pharisees in his own day. He has some hard words for the Pharisees and the scribes later on as he's right up near the cross and he's about to leave and his ministry is about to be over. But all throughout his ministry, he is trying to plead with them and show that he is indeed the true son of God. And if they would but repent and turn to him, they would find life. But they refuse to go in to Jesus' party. They refuse to humble themselves. Jesus is pursuing them, seeking to rescue them from their sin, but they want nothing to do with it. Friends, we need to recognize that religious people can just be just as lost as irreligious. Religious people can be just as lost as irreligious. The people who label themselves as Christian can be just as lost as non-Christians. And yet, as we're even seeing here, in some ways can be more lost, right? Be more deceived. They're so close and yet so far. They have all the truth in front of them, but they don't see Christ. They see the law, but they don't see grace. 
They've never been humbled before the cross. Rather, they see Christ and his word as a way to advance their own reputation and their own righteousness. This is a sobering reality. Well, we see the dynamic continue to play out between Jesus and the Pharisees, or rather the father and the elder son in verse 29, as we see that this self-righteous son now gives a polemic against his father. He gives a diatribe, a, a, a speech in which he tears down his father and unleashes his full vent to his anger. And so in this polemic and of this older son against his father, we see six, six aspects of his lostness. The first thing we see is that he had no respect for his father. He had no respect for his father. Look at verse 29. It says, and he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He does not notice, address his father with a respectful title. His younger brother had the dignity to call his, to address his father as father. Here, notice what he starts with. He says, look. In other words, he's believing himself to be an authority over his father. And he's, his dad better sit down and shut up because he's going to tell him the way it should be. He chooses to be intentionally rude to his father, furthering his rebellion. And so here even we see that the younger son, when he addresses his father, he knew he was a rebel. The older son, he was a rebel and he didn't know it. The second thing we see of his lostness is he misevaluated his righteousness. He misevaluated his righteousness. The older brother claims to have served his father his entire life. Look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. And this may be mostly true. He may never have outright disobeyed his father. He may have said, yes, father, every time he was asked. Like the apostle Paul, he couldn't say that as to the law, he was blameless. And yet, obedience is not just a matter of externals. Obedience is a matter of the heart and the hands. True obedience is done out of love and not duty. Jesus critiqued Israel of his day that they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. That was the older son. And this, that is the indictment of the self-righteous. There's an external righteousness, but an internal wickedness. A visible obedience, but an invisible disobedience. They have outward godliness, but inward rebellion. This is what the older brother did not and could not see. The third aspect of his lostness we see is that he believed grace could be bought. He believed grace could be bought. After his stellar record, he believed that he was owed grace. He was owed a celebration. He thought he deserved gifts from his father. You never gave me, he says. I did all of this and you never gave me. The implication is I deserve to receive this. You see, Phariseeism and self-righteousness puts God in a debtor to us. It deludes sinners into thinking they have something to offer God and that he should be privileged to have us working for him. We should be rewarded. This is the attitude that this brother had. The fourth aspect of his lostness is he wanted nothing to do with his father. He wanted nothing to do with his father. We already saw that in the fact that he didn't address his father as father. But here he talks about having a young goat that he might celebrate with his friends. Just 
as his brother ran off into a far country to feast with people without his father and that he wished his father was practically dead. So this older son, even though he lived and stayed with his father, wished and dreamed about celebrating, about feasting with his father nowhere to be seen. He wanted to celebrate with his friends. He could care less if his father lived or died. He had his priorities and his father was not part of it. Notice how small-minded, though, his party is. His father killed a fattened calf to feed the village and bring all into that joy, joyous gravity. This self-righteous man wants a young goat to feed a few friends. There's only a few that measure up to his standard. The fifth thing is that he fantasized about his brother's rebellion. He fantasized about his brother's rebellion. Look at verse 30. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Notice first that he doesn't even say my brother. He says this son of yours. He's practically disowned this brother. But notice that he claims that his brother has devoured the property with prostitutes. Now, if you've been reading the story carefully, there has been nothing mentioned in the story thus far about prostitutes. You could maybe surmise that based upon the spending recklessly that took place earlier in the story. But it hasn't been mentioned. And didn't this brother just come in from the field and just find out about his brother returning? Where would he have even heard, if the report was true, about the prostitutes? And many commentators believe, and I agree with them, that this actually reflects the older brother's fantasies. As he thought about his brother running off to the far country and spending this money, and he just grew more and more embittered and angry about how his, his brother was spending this money, he's like, and he's probably spending it on prostitutes. But deep down, his flesh craved that same thing. He was thinking about what his brother would get that he never could get. Even though he would never run off and do that very thing, it seems he may have wanted it, to, it in his heart. Again, those who have an external righteousness may have corruption on in the inside. The sixth and final aspect of his lostness that we see in his, his diatribe here is that he cannot fathom his father's grace. He cannot fathom his father's grace. He says, you killed the best calf for my brother. He's outraged. His sense of justice, he deserved better treatment than this. And so when his father, through this grand celebration, he's infuriated. He's scandalized. You see, the reason someone is scandalized by grace is because they don't realize that they have a need for it themselves. The older brother didn't realize, didn't believe he needed any grace. He believed he was righteous enough to measure up to the standard and therefore deserved anything good from his father. Well, after the son's polemic against the father, the father turns around and makes an appeal or a plea to him. And this is what we see in the final two verses of this passage. You can imagine maybe a pause after the son is finished with anger in his eyes. He's foaming at the mouth, even spitting as he's talking because he's so angry. And the last words for him kind of trail off. The father, as we've seen, is a man of tender heart, of gracious heart. 
Imagine a pause. He's grieved at the hard-heartedness of his son. And so with tears in his eyes, I imagine, he seeks to make one final appeal to him. The son had no respect for his father, didn't even call him by his name, didn't even call him father. But notice how the father addresses the son. He says, he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. The word son here could be translated child or my dear child. It's a different word for son than has been used through the whole passage. He's speaking with tenderness and affection as he approaches his second lost son in one day. And then he reminds him that, listen, everything that I have is yours already. Remember, I, I, I divvied up all that I have to your younger brother and you. In other words, everything of my estate is in your hands. There's nothing that is, that is not technically to your name. All that I have is yours. You have no reason to complain. But finally, verse 32, he says it was fitting. It was necessary to celebrate. We must celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He's saying, listen, we have to celebrate. This is the nature of what happens when there's reconciliation, when there's resurrection, when there is life where there once was death. We must celebrate. He invites, and through this, he invites his son to join in and celebrate. But notice the parable ends. It kind of cuts off. It's an awkward finish. Why is it so abrupt? Well, I believe it's because it's the tactic of Jesus. As he is speaking to the Pharisees, he leaves the question open. Remember, this is all a plea to the Pharisees. He's essentially asking the Pharisees, listen, I rejoice at the salvation of sinners. Will you join me? What are you going to do with me? Because I represent the Father. And I'm pleading with you. Will you join in the joy that I have over the salvation of sinners? Of course, we know what their answer is, even though it's not given in the text. History gave us the answer as recorded in the end of the Gospels. These Pharisees killed Jesus. They put him on the cross. It's as if this story were to be continued from actual history that the son takes out a stick and beats his father to death. And friends, as we finish this parable, we need to see God's offer of grace to both sinners and saints. God is pursuing sinners of all stripes, all types of people. And the grace can only be enjoyed by those who recognize they need it. Jesus said back in Luke chapter 5, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come, Jesus said, to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You could say, I did not come to call the self-righteous. I can't save those who are stuck in their own sin. They must recognize their need for repentance. Now, Jesus can save all people, but what he's saying is that those who are going to actually receive the salvation of God are those who are going to show signs of repentance. So friends, what this means for you this morning is that no matter who you are, no matter what your track record, no matter what your history, you are in need of a Savior. You need Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. There are no good works that you and I can do in which we can present before God on Judgment Day and which will be accepted into heaven. 
We only bring sin to the table. We only bring rebellion to the table. All our good works are filthy rags, the Bible says. We cannot trust them. It doesn't matter what kind of church attendance, how much money you put in the plate. It doesn't matter how many years you've given to Sunday school or to, to teaching or to any other religious activity. Those things do not gain righteousness in the eyes of God. All who come to Christ must be humbled at the cross. All of us must recognize our need before him. We must say with the with the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Is that the cry of your heart? Do you recognize that without Jesus you're lost? and that you only have him. I pray that each one of us would humble our hearts, recognize our lostness before God, and that we would walk the road of repentance clinging only to Jesus as our only hope of salvation. And so the question, as we see God's grace manifest in this parable, we need to ask ourselves, what will we do with God's grace? Will we respond and humble ourselves before it, or we continue to harden our hearts against it. Only knowing Christ will give the salvation that our hearts long for. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this word that reminds us of your grace, your grace to all sorts of people. Oh, Father, we are sobered by the reality that Self-righteousness, a trusting in our own good deeds can be so blinding that we can be so lost and not know or realize that we're lost. And so, Father, I ask that you would please, your spirit would work in our midst this morning. I pray for those who are feeling the, the prick of conviction, Father, that you would not allow that to be washed over, numbed, that they would be able to respond and turn to Christ this morning to find life for their souls. We thank you for your grace to sinners such as us and we give you praise for it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.